0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Seek Outside podcast. My name is Dennis, and today Kevin and I are joined by Andrew Skirka, a 38-year-old adventure athlete, guide, and writer. Andrew is a prolific long-distance thru-hiker. A few of his larger hikes include an Alaska expedition, where he hiked 4,700 miles in six months, the Great Western Loop, which was 68 175 miles in seven months in the sea to sea route which was 7,775 miles in 11 months. Andrew is a former Nat Geo Adventurer of the Year and he also suffers from adult onset hunting. We get into all of those topics in this podcast and you can find more about Andrew Skirka on his website Andrew Skirka that's Andrew, S K U R K A dot com. Please enjoy our conversation. Andrew Skirka, welcome to the Seag Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, and you Kevin's here as well. Yep. Hey, Kevin.
1: So I was chatting with you via email a few weeks ago, and I was kind of surprised because it wasn't something I'd really thought of, I'm kind of thinking it through a little more, and now. Now I see how, because like I was planning to do a guided hunting trip, not a guided hunting trip, a fly-in hunting trip in Alaska. I still don't know the status of that. And you had mentioned that this COVID and what's been going on has really kind of messed with your guided threats and instruction as well.
2: Yeah, it's turned my spring upside down. (laughs) So um, so my, my trips this year were scheduled to start in April. I had trips scheduled for April, May june july august september and my i had to postpone my april and may trips thankfully i was able to postpone them to october um but i had to just cancel my june trips just outright so yeah it's been difficult because it's you know normally at this time of the year well normally at this time of the year like so we're just our guiding seasons like um we're sort of like really into it at this point and it's just all a matter of like execution and we're not dealing with like organization anymore, and we're not trying to like find like you know oh, like oh we, hey we've got we've got um, empty spots on trips let's see if we can fill them like that normally that's done in like you know January February, so but this year just um, like you know it sounds kind of easy to to postpone a trip but you know just making sure like all like the so say like in West the the Utah clients from from April well, there were, there were 40 of them. So how many of them can like make the October dates? Uh, can I keep the groups the way they were or do you need to shuffle things around a little bit? And suddenly, you know, someone's like, well, Hey, you know, I actually really like to join you in California in September instead. So now I'm trying to find them a spot there. So it's been, it's been a lot of work. I won't lie. <laughs> yeah.
0: and, and what do your guided trips look like?
2: Yeah, the guided trips are um, three, five or seven days. And uh, we we comedy quite a range. I mean, it's definitely focuses on backpacking. Um, and uh, I, w- I wouldn't say like we have like a, I, w- I don't like to give a label to like our style of backpacking um, because we, I think we're pretty approachable. Um, I'd say it's like a pretty commonsensical approach, uh, which is, how do I say this, uh, maybe um, Our style of backpacking is one where we um, carry uh, the things that we need for our trip objective. House, So uh, okay. we, don't, we don't like to carry more. We don't like to carry less, but like, you know, it's pretty, pretty approachable. Um, so it's three, five or seven days and we, we've got like um, fundamental trips for first timers and beginners. Uh, and then on a very advanced level, we're doing seven day trips like up in the Brooks range. Yeah.
1: So, so what does the fundamentals trip? What do they, what do um, people that sign up hope to get out of it? Do they hope to just learn a lot of techniques and lightweight and how to get the gear list or
2: what. Yeah. So that's part of it. So we do um, before the course starts, we do a, an online like planning curriculum and um, for for us. It's just that's our way of making sure that they show up in the trailhead with the things that they need. So particularly uh, all the gear and food that they need. Um, but it's also an opportunity for us to teach them how to plan for a trip. Um, and then once we get into the field, um, you yeah, know, we're basically doing like a, um, a like especially the three-day trip it's very heavy on instruction so it's uh, like the first day like we, we usually meet at 9 a.m we're hiking by 10 30 um, and like maybe within like an hour we'll stop and do like a map orientation like to teach people how to read maps contour line shading uh, scale um, and then um, we'll hike a little further and it's like okay we get to a water source and we stop we'll walk people through different water purification techniques we'll pull in a camp at four o'clock we'll show them how to set up shelters like a bunch of different shelters so like here's how to set up a mid here's how to set up a, uh, a you know a a, a a frame tarp here's how to set up a, a flat tarp here's how to set up a single wall talk about the pros and cons of them kind of people kind of let them like you know see the fabrics and feel and touch and get inside um, st- start um, maybe cooking dinner like six, show them how to use an alcohol stove Um, before the end of the night, we're gonna talk about uh, like overnight food storage. So it's pretty like for someone like yourself, like it's pretty all pretty basic stuff, but but for someone who's never been out before, or someone who uh, maybe has been out, but like it's always felt kind of rough, like not rough, it was felt kind of rough, like just not, they're never really have it dialed. It's like a really good um, introductory experience for them.
1: So, so for for the um, for the uh, for the record, um, you've done some really impressive trips over, you know, five thousand, seven thousand mile trips. Were Nat Geo's Adventure of the Year at one point right? You're not even the first, not even the first Nat Geo Adventure of the Year we've had on. We've had Dave Freeman on uh, as well, um, and I think it would be really fun to have you guys like plan a trip sometime because. He's done some pretty. I don't know if you're familiar, but they've done some pretty intense trips, but they do them differently. Who Who is it? Dave Freeman, Dave and Amy. Like they did a, they did a trip called the North American Odyssey, where they started out kayaking from Bellingham up to Alaska. Then they did a combination of hiking and canoe routes, um, all the way to the Arctic Ocean in the Northwest Territories. Then they dog sledded through the winter. Damn. (laughs) <laughs> they, they territory all the way to the east coast and all the way down the florida keys
2: wow what an immense amount of work to plan that
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly
1: um so anyway so so the beginner trip is like that the advanced trip is like in a place like the brooks range
2: yeah right So what do
1: people hope to learn like on a trip in the Brooks Range?
2: Yeah, so in the Brooks Range, I mean, the clientele is different. So these are um, usually like 80, 85% of the clients will be alumni. So um, I think for for a trip like the Brooks Range, um, um, that's a location where a lot of people don't feel comfortable planning their own trip. So most of them are at the point where they could plan their own trip in the High Sierra or, you know. The Rockies or the East Coast—they don't really need our service for that. But for a trip like the Brooks Range, it's just a lot of logistics, which is bush planes and 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 if you if you've been up there, you know, like you can't just sort of walk around the place um, freely. There's a lot of like optimization of travel as far as like um, animal trails and uh, ground cover with you know, muskeg and brush and that kind of thing. Awesome. So just having, you know, having like being able to tap into um, someone's expertise in that area is pretty, pretty big value.
1: Yeah. Agreed. I mean, the tussocks up there are no joke.
2: Uh, oh Yeah, no joke. I mean, you could, it's, you know, just, it's deceptive place because you look at the maps and if you've never been up there, you just have no concept of like Arctic travel. And so you look at those maps and well, first the maps are all, uh, you know, it's one to 60 to 500 scale with 100 foot contours and most, and Most people have never seen that map scale before, so they're not really sure what they're looking at, like how big things are. Um, And then the other thing they don't. It's just they don't really understand. They don't have that pattern recognition. They don't have like that database of of like past observations to to then be able to look at a map of a new area and say, "Okay, yeah, well, you know, when I was in a similar area like this, yeah, those tussocks like were huge. (laughs) So let's stay away from this spot, you know, or. Like, you know, yeah, I was in a similar area and the brush line at this elevation with like this slope aspect was really bad. So let's stay away from that. So.
1: It's also a little bit of a kind of, at least to me, I've done one trip up there. It was a rafting in Huntington. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's also kind of a little bit of an oh shit moment. I mean, you realize that like, you are nowhere near civilization of any type. Yeah,
2: right. Yeah. You're, you're way out in the brooks. Um, and I think the, the other, so not only like are you way out, but you're the bailouts all suck. <laughs> like, I mean, if you, so if you get in trouble in the lower 48, like you can like, usually kind of identify a, a bailout route that saves you a lot of misery because it's way shorter. It's gets you out to help faster whatever it might be, but like up, up in alaska generally speaking like you've picked the best line already so whenever you're trying like if you need to get out for some reason usually there's really not a great way to to do that so like where we were last year we were up in up in the so we're in the western half of the gates of the arctic and, and so like in the upper headwaters of like the alatna and uh the uh we weren't we were as far east as the john but um so the, the alatna would be the main body water and then on the north side would be the no attack like, if you got in trouble and needed to, like, self-evac, I mean, you would you would have to have a raft. And it would be it be like a 100-mile-long river trip on this slow-meandering John River uh, or Latina River to get out to
0: Bettles. <laughs> so... Yeah, um, uh, yeah, yeah. That, <clears throat> that doesn't sound easy as an evac route, right? No, like, no, no, but the,
2: yeah. I mean, that's the way it is up there, so yeah. it's... Um, yeah, yeah, really. You break,
1: you, yeah, you break a leg or something, and it's <laughs> it's totally yeah. a different
2: world, I right? Know. And then you know, you know, if that does happen, so like, okay, so you break a leg. Um, I mean, there are only so many landing strips up there, so then you're talking about you know, trying to. If they can't bring in a landing, if they can't get a plane in nearby, so then you're talking about a helicopter out of Fairbanks or something. I mean, it is the logistics are daunting, and that's why that's why the Brooks Range trips do pretty well for us because. A lot of people want to go there, but they just are too intimidated by doing it themselves.
0: Sure. Um, Can you can you talk just a little bit, just real quick, about kind of your Alaska Yukon expedition, so people get a get a feel for like your experience in Alaska?
2: Yeah, sure thing. Yeah. So um, the Alaska Yukon expedition was my last like my last big personal trip. It was was ten years ago now. Um, It was forty seven hundred miles, six months. I started in March, finished in September. And it's basically a big loop um, starting up in the Northwest Arctic um, going down to Juneau and then turning around and going up through the Yukon and back across the Brooks range. So, and it was, uh, I started off on skis. So I skied when I skied the first 12, I think I skied like the first 1200 miles No, it was a little bit more than that maybe 1500 miles. And then the rest was on um, hiking in a pack raft. Um, and then and I, uh, rented a sea kayak for the Yukon River for a couple hundred miles. Yeah. So.
1: Well, did you ever at that time think like, what did I get myself into? Maybe. Oh, every, just, day. every day. Every day.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The. I mean, I would call home. So it's how I was twenty-nine years old. Um, it's like, kind of an adult and like pretty mature already, but like still just, you know, there's a lot like emotionally to deal with every day. Um, so I would call my mom, and my mom would. Like she, my mom really just wanted me to come home because I was she's like, you are going to have like PTSD when you get done with this thing. And and like and I think I think that was kind of lost on me at the time, just how stressed I was at all because at like, like you wake up and every day you're not. Um, it's very, just very unpredictable, like you don't really know like what's around the next corner, um, you know, like the weather is so much bigger. The rivers are all bigger. Um, if you get in trouble, there's really no one to help you. So it was just a lot to uh, to deal with solo all the time for six months. Did
1: you go through a lot of the little villages?
2: I did, yeah. So the first, um, it ended up being, so like the trip kind of, like if you think about it in thirds, um, the first third of the trip I was skiing um, basically on snow machine trails from village to village. And then the middle third was um, kind of where I hit the road system and I was skied across the Alaska range and dropped down to uh, the Lost Coast. And then, um, took that took the Yukon River up to Dawson City and then the final third was across the the Yukon Arctic and across the Brooks Range and those three the, the thirds all had very different sort of feels to them like the the native village thing was um it's pretty eye opening um like interesting um uh like with this with like for example like what's going on with like coronavirus up there it's like I totally understand like why they why all the native villages have have asked that the the you know plane services not fly passengers into their villages this summer like i totally get it um and then like the middle third was like really great country some like the most majestic country that i was in um logistically a little bit easier and then the final third was just like totally redefined my sense of wilderness i mean like the Oh, uh, the Brooks Range, like you know, northern Alaska, gets a lot of attention, but the Yukon is maybe even more wild than than the Brooks Range.
1: Hmm. Wow. So, so you said there's some ocean kind of moments, right? Like every day, a little bit of yeah. Day. Um, you are you familiar with who Matt Hunter is? He's a professional mountain biker. Um, I don't United. think so. I, I was talking to him because a uh, few years ago, he used similar gear and did a trip called The Foodless Odyssey, um, which ended up being on outside TV or whatever. And okay. they, they did a mountain bike trip around the island of Paraguay um, with no food, um, with the purpose of fishing, foraging, and hunting for all the food for the whole trip. And he okay. was like, that was one of those trips that his description of it was, it sounded really good when they
2: were discussing. <laughs> Let's so, get on paper. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. It, it wasn't so cool when they when they got into it. You know, yeah. it was, was kind of like, oh, I mean, they caught salmon. They got blueberries, mushroom, or blueberries mushrooms, or berries, mushrooms. What you know, they killed a deer um, with a bow. That was good, but it was like every time you would you would stop, you would get kind of familiarized with an area where here's kind of food sources. Then you had to kind of keep going. And your energy was so up and down because of the they were doing a physical thing and food might not eat one day you know right. or be one salmon for the whole group so
2: right yeah yeah I'm not sure that uh, I'm trying to move large distances every day and foraging are compatible mm-hmm. uh, just from an efficiency perspective I and mean, you're way better off just packing an obscene amount of chocolate versus trying to like catch fish (laughs) i maybe is like a supplement um to your rations but yeah i could see like someone being sort of consumed with the romance of that trip and then the reality of it being um quite different
1: yeah i I, I leaned on that uh, a couple months later because i had been talking to a guy that lived in wiseman and we had talked about riding the mountain biking the road up to dead horse and back
2: yeah the Dalton Highway. Yeah. Yeah, the Dalton oh, okay. Highway.
1: Before it got light when it was really good northern light stuff. Okay. And Matt's like, That sounds like an awesome trip. And here's what you should do. Make sure your brakes and all this. And then I finally realized that well Matt also said that a lot of times trips sound better in the planning stage than reality. And when I look at it, it's like Dead Horse has an average high of negative ten and march or something you know maybe you know, i don't think this trip sounds as good as it did when, when, when i initially conceived it you know so
2: that's a lot. lot that's a lot of cold yeah
1: yeah so how long did it take you to plan a trip like the alaska kind of uh
2: This is like one to one so like six months six months to plan six months to do yeah i think i would you know, i would be able to do it more efficiently now just with um because of guiding as many trips as i do every year and just um and then just the improvement or the the improved access to information it would it wouldn't take me as long now so just i have a better system and like there's so much more information at my fingertips um, online um, but yeah six six months was about right yeah uh, the big the most time-consuming part of it was probably just figuring out where the hell to go because there's no there's no trail right so um, it's like it's one thing to plan, one thing. One, thing, one thing to plan like it's being away been. for six months. It's another thing it's to um, make up a route for that length of time.
1: No well, And then, what did food look like? I mean, you did. I saw your map. You had your drop thing, your, your, your drops. But did you buy food along the way as well, or was it, was that, or was it all? calories you planned
2: out yeah mostly mostly shipped it out so i would buy i'd buy stuff along the way just to supplement um like maybe i'd walk into a, a store and go like oh oreo cookies those look really good <laughs> those <laughs> look, look better than the pemmican bars that i thought i was gonna like and i'm not really liking
0: you're like um, i'm gonna put oreo cookies on my chocolate bar that sounds like an amazing yeah, dinner right. tonight. yeah yeah
2: um So but I I think it's, you know, just the context here matters. So like, I mean, it was it was much easier, much more efficient for me to plan out almost everything beforehand. And then once I started the trip, I just was focusing on moving and um, not so much on the logistics. So it's the same thing with like all my gear. So before I left, I had all the gear that I would need for the entire trip. and my, my mom, who's like an excellent support person, would send it out as I needed it. And I I had I'd done enough trips to know the frequency with which I wore out things. Um, and I also was pretty good too about figuring out where I would be at certain times of the year and where I would probably be wanting to make equipment changes. So for example, um, I figured that um, sometime probably in, in like April or May, I don't remember the timing now, um, I would probably want to swap out my winter zero-degree sleeping bag for like a, a twenty-degree quilt, and then um, like and then once I exited the um, once I exited the Alaska range and headed into the Wrangles, that was probably going to be around the time where I swapped out my skis for my hiking shoes and raft. Um, so I just kind of had all of that stuff ready to go, and then once I get out there, I could just sort of focus on moving.
0: You had a you had a good quote back to the food thing real quick um, in in one of the videos I watched. You said hunger is a great seasoning. Um, yes. In, in talking about and then and then you yeah. kind of dove into your Fritos and in beans and, and uh, can you just uh, like talk about that just for a second? Just like what what your favorite meal is and it's, it sounds like maybe it's Fritos and beans. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it depends on the evening, but yeah. Um, I mean, if you're hungry, everything is good,
2: right? So. Mm. Um, and typically in the backcountry you're on like especially if you're on a trip of that length you're not getting enough calories on most days so um so yeah most days you're hungry and and you're also like like you're also like kind of obsessed with food too because you're always carrying it there's always there's this like you know you have a you know that there's like a um what is it like an hourglass like a so there's like this tipped over hourglass and you only have so much time before you run out of food so and that's always weighing on you you kind of always know that so um yeah hunger is definitely the best seasoning the things that you can get away with eating in the backcountry are very different than what you um would be able to justify at home mm-hmm.
1: now do you did you lose a lot of weight on a trip like that you're a fairly pretty slender person that runs and has already done a lot of trips. But lot yes. Of
2: people... Usually I think, I think my experience is pretty normal. Um, so usually I lose quite a bit of weight at first and then it stabilizes. And I think what happens is that um, and someone, a nutritionist could tell you for sure, but I think what happens is that um, your body like early on in a trip, it's sort of, um, it's just like burning lots of calories but hasn't sort of sent the signal that it needs it needs more and then there's like this switch that happens um and it's for me it's like week and a half two weeks um and suddenly you're just hungry and you just want to eat everything you can and that basically stays the case the rest of the trip.
0: Hmm. So do you do you factor that into your meal planning? Are you like hey two weeks in I'm gonna need 500 yeah, hours I, I, bump,
2: I bump it up. So, um, like more recent. So like most of the trips I've been doing in recent years, they've been, um, like a week to two weeks. And, um, definitely like after that weekish time frame, I will like, I will start sort of adding some extra calories, knowing that, um, what I was able to get away with the first couple of days or first week just won't cut it anymore. Yeah. God, and, yeah. and Like, let's be honest, I mean, when you're short on food, you kind of, like, everything kind of sucks. So, (laughs) like, I'd rather, I'd rather be kind of like a, you know, fat jolly hiker um, and, like, be pretty good on food and feel like I almost have too much um, than to always feel like I'm just crabby because I want to eat more.
1: Have have you ever tried to experiment with just absolute different diets out there or different nutrition patterns or... You pretty much stayed to your same. Instances.
2: I think you know, accidentally probably have experimented with most at this point. Um, so I know, like, um, I don't do well with like simple, real simple sugars. So like, Pop-Tarts, I just can't, just can't do Pop-Tarts. They just, I burn through them in like half an hour, and I'm hungry again. And I also like have a strong preference for things that I have to chew. So like things like a goo mm-hmm. or like powder drinks, like they that's just, that does not work because you're just, you know, they're like by design they're meant to be digested very rapidly and like give you a quick burst of energy. Um, and I don't think when you're hiking, that's what you want. I think when you're hiking, you want stuff that sticks to your ribs. So, and then, um, I've, you know, I've made lots of other mistakes. So like I've done, um, Oh, let's see. So I, I thought at one point, like maybe like doing a bunch of different trail mixes, Um, and like just combining like a lot of different ingredients into, into a bag of trail mix, like would keep me from like being bored of that. And what happens is like that trail mix just takes on like this cumulative flavor and you just get bored of that flavor, even though there are different flavors inside of it. So like, I realized like it was better to do. So more specifically it's better to do a separate bags of M&Ms. Um, you know, cashews and, um, and pretzels than it is for a mixed bag of those ingredients. Got so, it.
0: That, that lasts you longer, like psych, psychologically lasts yeah. you longer than, yep. got it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sometimes,
1: makes... you want, sometimes you just want them nut or whatever. And then sometimes <laughs> combine them all.
2: Yeah. It just, yeah, you get, yeah. So that was another mistake. Um, I also tried like, uh, uh, I've tried to do like the no cook, like no stove. And then I think that's a total, mm-hmm. like I know there are lots of through hikers who, who do it. Um, it's never, I've always associated like a um, hot meal at the end of the day as being like a reward for like, for hard work. So I, I, I need a hot meal at the end of the day. Yeah, and it's you, really, you,
1: un- uh... I was uh... going to say, it's
2: just really ungratifying to like eat a bowl of like, cold soaked beans, You're like, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: like, yeah, uh, that's, that's been soaking in the Nalgene for four hours. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, like yeah. kind of yeah. drinking like, them out of the Nalgene. Right. Like, yeah. and,
2: and to each his own, I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I really, I, I really try hard not to be like kind of guru about my, about my backpacking style. I, I think that, I think that there are definitely some right ways to backpack. Um, but I think with food, uh, food is a really personal thing. So I try to, that's more of where I'll, where I'll say, well, this is what works for me and your mileage may vary.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So what do you, so since you've done so much, um, guiding, what are a couple of the, the issues that you see a lot of people have problems with? That they can do that.
2: Um, well, we, do, we do a pretty good job of weeding out those problems. Um, but I will say that like the, um, the, One of the things that one of the patterns that we see a lot of is um, people want to pack their fears. So Uh if they're afraid of being hungry, they pack too much food. If they're afraid of being cold at night, they'll pack a sleeping bag that's way warmer than it needs to be. If they're um, If they're afraid of bears, they insist on being like in a fully enclosed shelter because you know still nylon is bearproof proof if you didn't yeah, know
0: it's, <laughs> it's all it's in true. the head man
2: um, so it, so what we try one of the things that we try to do with the guided trips in that planning curriculum is basically to um, go through a process that um, helps you identify like what you actually will encounter and that stops prevents your mind from running amok and you justifying a lot of things on the grounds of like well what if or you know just in case and because that's when people get in trouble as far as what they're packing
1: yeah yeah carrying the fears around in the pack yeah Um, totally agree with that yeah um that's interesting so let's let's kind of back up your first big hike was on the at right
2: yeah
1: (laughs) you weren't really an ultralighter at that point
2: Oh, my God, no, no, I'm not even ultralight. Like, that term hadn't even been defined. This was 2002. Um, light had been founded, like, three years prior. Um, uh, heavy, huge packs. Like, everyone was still backpacking like it was the early 1990s. So uh, I met, there were two guys on the entire trail that summer I met who had hammocks. Um, uh, There's, and, like, like, these guys were, like, uh, and then there are two other guys they called they're uh, they called the trees that had go light packs and like people knew about these guys because it was like what they were doing was that revolutionary that like word spread like up and down the trail about the hammock brothers and about the trees because they were these two guys were using hammocks and these other guys had go light packs um, so it was a, yeah it was a very different thing and then i also had no idea what i was doing so um i i was like I, at the time i i had i had did not was unaware that um, backpacking is not a one-size-fits-all activity and that there's actually like different styles of backpacking. So there's sort of the, uh, you know, uh, uh, rest and relaxation method, which is where you carry a ton of stuff and you go fishing and you drink beer, you know, while sitting on your camp chair around a fire and singing like or playing your guitar. And it's kind of that. And then there is like the endurance athletes' approach to backpacking, which is what I adhere to now. Which is, um, you know, it's all about uh, daytime movement, and camping is really just a eight-hour recharge between the reason that you're really out there.
1: Now, where where does that where does that draw the line though between, say, the ability to enjoy the trail, right, and turning it into an endurance event? Mm-hmm. And I'm by no means I'm no means saying that either approach is wrong i've noticed i've been kind of thinking about doing a couple of weeks backpacking, trip them monitoring snow levels i was thinking about going through the women or maybe going from new mexico through the women's to molas and then back down to durango on the colorado trail kind of haven't really made up my mind but i saw someone post that they averaged 25 miles or something on the colorado trail one time and then the next time they averaged like 14 miles and or something what much slower in, Realize they enjoyed it a lot more. Um, and likewise, I have seen people that you know have the idea that they're going to hike at night a lot, so they can carry a smaller pack. And to me, I'm, although I've done stuff at night, that kind of is defeating, especially a scenic trail like the Colorado Trail or parts of the Continental Divide. It's kind of self-defeating to be walking through beautiful mountains in the middle of the night um, and sleeping in the day.
2: Yeah, I don't know why you'd, I don't know why. I, I try to avoid night hiking at all costs, because I, I agree with you. Um, I, There definitely is a line, but like, I mean, that line is very personal. So, I mean, some mm-hmm. people are like, at one extreme end, you have like, just a, a pure masochist, someone who like, who just thrives off of punishing themselves. And it's really not for like, for me to judge, or you to judge, or anyone else to judge like, that they're doing it wrong. Um, right. Like, that's kind of their style. Um. I think where where I come where I say that there is like a right way to backpack is that your your setup needs to reflect your style. So like that masochist who who wants to hike for twenty hours a day and be sleep deprived, <laughs> um, like they they want to be like optimized for on trail comfort, super light, like carrying as little as they possibly can, and then. You know, if I'm going to go out, say with my wife, where the trips tend to be more casual, um, you know, I'm going to bring a big backpack, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to pack her Kindle and a and, a, and a washcloth, so at so she can get like a hot a hot face bath at night, and um, you know, I'm going to bring like a bigger stove so I can make coffee in minutes rather than hours with an alcohol stove. So it just you just want to make sure that that your um, your kit is consistent with your style, and and on the Appalachian Trail, back to like going back to this when I started I was like trying to walk from Georgia to Maine and I thought I was going to go out there and be like one with nature and like be like John Muir and like hang out all summer in the woods and that's not really how you get to, to Maine <laughs> so you know. like I, I started off with I'm just thinking like sorry but like I started off with I had a book like I carried a, like a hard like a actually maybe even two books <laughs> like a hard yeah. book Yeah, maybe a hardcover book Um, and uh, like, you know, and not to say that look a book is bad, um, but, you know, that book was inside of a backpack that's, you know, like all in. I was carrying like, I don't know, 40, 50 pounds like, you know, that that's not the kind of I wasn't having a good time. Let's just put it this way. Carrying that much weight, trying to do 20, 25 miles a day through Georgia and Maine or Georgia and Tennessee, North Carolina.
0: Can can you just contrast that? Like, so you you just said 40, 45 pounds or something, you know, like what would you do today? You know, I mean, that was 20, almost 20 years ago, right? 18 years ago or something like, what would that look like today? If you were going to do that again, There are only, there are only two times that I'm carrying that much weight
2: now. One is if I'm in, so if I'm training and I have, uh, like literally, I've put bricks in my backpack to, for for weight training, and the other is when I'm carrying out an elk. <laughs> but there's no, uh, yeah. Like, I mean, I'd say that my like my typical typical pack weight nowadays, like minus food and water, you're probably looking at. Um, uh, it depends on like if it's a personal trip or guided trip. Probably like ten to fifteen pounds. Bear canister adds two, um, and uh, then food weight is going to be pound and a half to two pounds a day okay so
0: um so, so, say, so that's like 30, that's like 30 pound sure. difference from kind of what you had done at that time to what you would do today yeah and then, thereabouts yeah and then
2: and the other crazy thing is that like i would say that um i feel way more comfortable like just in terms of my preparedness to deal with the conditions with a pack that weighs 10 or 15 pounds now versus what i was carrying Know, 50, you know, 40, 50 pounds, whatever it was before. Like, I mean, I started off the Appalachian Trail with a, um, it was a North Face uh, wind-resistant uh, jacket or rain-resistant jacket, water-resistant jacket. Cause I didn't understand that like, like I re- remember reading the hang tag and it said water-resistant, I'm like sweet, this will be my rain gear. <laughs> and I get out there and it's <laughs> again, no tape seams. Uh, doesn't have a membrane on it. Like the DWR finish, you know it was like gone in about 10 minutes Mm. so i was like you know like hypothermic in the smokies um because i got stuck in like a cold rainstorm and had no way to like stay stay dry um so yeah
1: so you're out so you're out there you're you're carrying a lot of weight right and now you you've made a career and you, you arguably might be one of the most famous backpackers in the world or adventurers, right, at this point, um, was there some time in that trip that you said, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to, well, was there anything that led you to believe that you would be doing the C to C or the uh, Alaskan Yukon expedition, or was it really just trying to complete that trip? And, Make it through, and you were happy, you were done with
2: it. And yeah, it I think well. I think with that trip, I was just just trying to survive every day, <laughs> like <laughs> I was just like just focus on the here and now. I'm like okay, like how am I gonna? I mean, literally the first day, first day, I'm like hiking. I'm on the approach trail, and I'm like this this blows. Like this pack weighs a ton, <laughs> and I have not, I have not like walked on level ground in like four hours. I've just been hiking uphill the entire time. And I started chanting um Katahdin to myself because that was the only way that I had to keep myself motivated <laughs> to carry on. So yeah, I don't think I don't think when I did the Appalachian Trail in two thousand two that they're like yeah, they're like the Alaska Yukon expedition was like a glimmer in my eye or anything. I mean that was like so I don't know, that was, you know, I'd be like talking to like a prehistoric human about like landing on the moon. It was like not just different different <laughs> um, I, I mean there did become a point where like me doing long expeditions became normal. And like where I was like I was consider myself basically a a dirtbag through hiker. And that's that was my lifestyle. It's what I did. And I was always looking for like the next the next trip. Um always focused on the one I was doing but knowing but expecting that there would be one that came after it too
1: so so what was your next trip after the Appalachian Trail
2: um I came out to Colorado um for summer intern with go light and um then did I did the Colorado Trail I was out here um and then the next big one was the C to C route so that was um 2004 2005 that was the longest like longest mileage it was 7800 miles took me 11 months
1: so you didn't you didn't go the PCT CBT route. Um, no. Was there a reason? Uh, um, this stuff, this stuff more interesting. Uh,
2: yeah, I just I, um, uh, I'm sure it would have been it would have been beneficial for me to have done that, but it just I don't know it, may, it looked a little it looked maybe it was a little too ordinary already. It oh,
0: seemed
2: yeah. it seemed like too natural, like too um too much of a given progression. So I just thought that the C to C route looked more interesting. It was a very different experience than what like than what a Pacific Crest Trail hike is.
1: But. well, I had some serious winter. You did like fourteen hundred miles. In the yes, winter, yes.
2: No shoot, fourteen hundred miles through uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and then and it was also like very uh, cultural too. Um, so I was like uh, <laughs> I was like you know walking through like you know farming towns in North Dakota and like, uh, like walking past branding parties in Montana. And, um, it was, it had a very different, uh, more, much more of a human aspect to it for a lot of it. They're
1: probably looking at you like, why are you walking?
2: Oh man. I mean, I I just, I remember some of the, some of the looks I got, I remember like walking to this one cafe in North Dakota somewhere. And, uh, it was like, it was a really sunny day outside and the cafe was like this like kind of dark um, and I walked in that, into that cafe and just like the conversations just ceased as soon as I stepped in the door frame. It was like something out of a movie. <laughs> and, uh, cause I, you know, I had, I was 20, I was like 23, 24 years old. Um, and I had this backpack with like a sleeping pad over, you know, lashed to the top of it. And I was, probably was wearing like running shorts that no one in
0: town had ever seen before. So, <laughs> I, I can just, I can just picture that. And uh, yeah, like you said, like any movie that you've seen where everybody turns around and looks yeah. at the guy in the doorway. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was a so great, like, the... like, sorry for like for 24 year old, it was like the perfect trip to do. Hmm. So,
0: uh, morning, so, yeah. Can, can you just talk about the C2C, like what, what that means, you know, um, just because I, I don't actually know myself. Like,
2: yes, yeah, so I started in um, Quebec, uh, Kip Bay, Quebec, and then I used the International Appalachian Trail to get down to Maine, followed the Appalachian Trail down into Vermont, used the North Country Trail from New York to North Dakota, uh, created my own route along Missouri to get to the Continental Divide Trail, and then followed the Continental Divide Trail and the Pacific Northwest Trail to get to uh, Washington.
0: And so how much of that trail is, you know, um, actually on trail, and and how much is kind of you navigating maybe roads and private land and, and whatnot? uh i
2: i can't give you an exact number um it definitely went in phases so there are some sections that are like almost all on trail so for example like the north country trail through michigan is like almost entirely on trail especially once you get maybe like up and like beyond like say like uh like battle creek north of battle creek it's like basically all on trail um and then but then there are other sections so like uh like north dakota you're just following section line roads forever Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do you have a lot
0: of a lot of people pull over like thinking you're hitchhiking like you need a ride somewhere
2: uh yeah plenty of that or yeah you need anything you know what are you up to um uh didn't get um didn't just trying to think like very rarely had issues like the only time that i can like think of that um uh like law enforcement pulled up once. I think I was in North, I was outside of Fargo. And he's like, where are you going? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm going, I'm going to Washington. <laughs> <laughs> well, where'd you come from? Well, I started in Canada. Yeah, so mm-hmm. it just, but you know, I was young and like, you know, fresh face, like, you know, and I, and I dressed the part, like, I looked like I was going somewhere. I wasn't like, sure. I wasn't home hoboing. Yeah. yeah. So that always helped.
1: No, no. I take it on that trip you got pretty familiar with
2: vapor bars. Not on that trip. That's that trip is where oh. I was, where I realized that I, my kit was missing something.
1: Okay, and what was it?
2: Well, I would, you know, I'm I'm up there, and you know, temperatures like you know, nighttime temperatures regularly below zero, and mm-hmm. I can't go more than like three or four nights before my sleeping bag is soaking wet okay so i'm like how does like how do you do this
1: okay so explain go through kind of what what happened there
2: so what was happening is that uh as i was perspiring at night and not in like not sweating but just you know your natural um uh your natural sort of perspiration from your body um and that moisture was Trying to move its way through my insulation, like insulated jacket, clothing, into my sleeping bag, and and while it was moving through my sleeping bag, it would hit, basically, would hit the the, uh, the dew point, which is inside my sleeping bag in those temperatures, and when it hits the dew point, it turns from humidity, into like physical vapor, like or into uh into like, actual moisture, so that moisture would just you know night after night would just Accumulate inside my sleeping bag and obviously you know a down sleeping bag. I don't care. What kind of quality Uh, If it's subject to moisture like that night after night, it's gonna lose its lose its warmth And just get really sort of clammy and uncomfortable
1: Okay, so you went with uh, then you started using vapor barriers
2: Yeah, it took me so I didn't I didn't really fully implement it until I did a trip a couple years later Um, I went back up to Minnesota in January and had like a full vapor barrier kit, and that made a big difference. Just not, um, yeah. You know, basically, my my insulation, the the uh, my insulation wasn't being compromised. Um, and then there are other benefits too. Like you don't have like the evaporative heat loss um, during the day, because you're just um, so you can kind of stay you can stay warmer for for clothing that uh, weighs less. Um, and then I re- and then I use vapor barriers again, during the Alaska Yukon expedition for the first uh, couple of months. And when te- temperature. So,
1: so you wore them as part of your clothing kit then as well.
2: Yeah, I think that's the way to go because, um, so you have, you have two options with the vapor barrier liner. You've got, you can do like a, uh, a sleeping bag liner and that protects your sleeping bag. Um, but that means that you're basically having to sleep in your underwear, so like long johns and a base layer shirt at most. Because if you're wearing more than that, you're sort of unable to feel the perspiration and that, and that perspiration will get trapped in those outer layers. Um, and then the other thing, the other thing with a sleeping bag liner is you don't get the benefit of it during the day. Whereas if you have vapor barrier liner clothing, um, you, um, you can wear it at night and you can wear like I mean, what I used to do is I would, and this is what I always do, but I would, I would go to bed at night, and I would have my, at least my base layer shirt, and then my vapor bear, vapor barrier liner jacket, and then I would have, I had two insulated jackets with me, um, one basically using as a mid layer, and another for like you know my like belay parka, and then um, and then I would get inside my sleeping bag, so I was basically turn like a zero degree sleeping bag into something that was more comfortable down to like 20 below zero. Um, So that worked really well. And then um, I also had socks. I think it, um, and then uh, gloves. So like the uh, RBH Designs vapor mitts are awesome. Um, And uh, you can use them day after day after day without, um, without, without the insulation being compromised.
1: Yeah, I noticed, um, it was probably eight or 10 years ago. I did a backcountry trip in early spring, at close to treeline. So it was, it was snow. It was winter camping in Colorado. And a friend of mine and I, we were skiing some areas, some backcountry areas. And his feet were cold. And I put um, little garbage bags. I said, here, try these, you know, which is basically a vapor barrier concept. And it, uh, his feet were no longer cold.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, so probably what was happening is that the um, well, maybe a couple of things. But one was that he was losing heat through evaporation. When you're like when you sweat, and that that heat that moisture has to escape through by being evaporated off. So you're losing heat that way. Um, and then the other thing that's happening is, uh, you know, if you get your boots wet, even just from perspiration, like after a couple over a couple of days. Um, you know, that accumulated moisture in there, it takes energy to keep that moisture warm. So, and then the, the worst part too, and you, you've known this because you've it's probably between hunting season and backcountry skiing, having a wet boot that freezes overnight and in the morning, that is, that is such a, even just even just a shoe that just had, not even like exposed to like, you know, like, uh, like wet snow or something, just if it just, if you're sweating in it the day before, I mean, that could be enough moisture in there to really make it a real pain in the ass to put on in the morning.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Dennis Dennis and I both grew up in Wisconsin. And I did a winter camping trip with the Boy Scouts in Wisconsin. And on the winter camping trip, I woke up and my boots were frozen over and almost an L or whatever. And yeah, it's pretty miserable. You have like 45 minutes trying to warm your boots up to get your feet in, yep. in in front of the fire.
2: So yeah. 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 The key thing there, if you, if you suspect your boots are going to freeze up at night, you just, you got to open them up, like loosen all the laces and like just open them. So you can at least get your foot in there and then it's not comfortable, but just jam your foot in there and tie the laces best you can and let your foot sort, sort of thawed out. But yeah, it's yeah definitely one of the worst parts of, of uh, winter trips. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
1: So like Dennis mentioned earlier, adult onset hunting, um, ultralight hunting, lightweight hunting. Um, that's something that's definitely popular. We play in that space quite a bit. Um, but then there's also people who say, well, it's, it's retarded to try to go lightweight hunting. Um, how do you, like, what does your ultralight or lightweight hunting kit look
2: we'll like it's not very ultra light <laughs> <laughs> i was
0: going say would you would you call it ultra like yeah what's I mean the you know, title you would give your so give your own this kit is, this is where i laugh at
2: like at like you know the reddit ultralight thread where like you know because you'll put something up and you know yeah you'll be going you'll be going like elk hunting in colorado in the middle of november and you're like well here's my here's my ultralight know hunting kit and like they're like they're like this is an ultralight ultralight means that you have a base weight of less than 15 pounds and you have a base weight of 40 (laughs) and um and you're like well you know you're right but um so i mean i think you know when i put my kit together i think i think 40 pounds with the rifle is about is i think is about right um because you got to figure you're in you're you're just your equipment alone to be comfortable in those conditions and not just comfortable but like remember too you're spending a lot of time just sitting around so it's probably like a almost a 20 pound base weight and then then you've got say um not quite 10 pounds of hunting equipment so like optics um game bags you know knife um you know like that kind of thing. And then finally you have your rifle or, you know, whatever you're, whatever you're using. And that, you know, for me, like, you know, I've carried, I've got a fairly lightweight rifle. It's a, um, a Tika T3. Um, but by, you know, but by the time you add a, put a scope on there, it's like a, you know, it's like a six pound rifle you put on. A, I don't know how much the scope weighs, probably two and a half pounds. It weighs 10 pounds too. So yeah, you're at like 40. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, um, I have, like, my thinking on hunting has, like, evolved as I've gotten into it. Like, I think when I first started, I was like, oh, like, I think you could, I think basically I could, like, go on a backpacking, I could go on a, I could, see, how was I phrasing this, basically go on a backpacking trip with a rifle and maybe try to put something down, but I'm just not convinced that that's really the, it's not really practical in a lot of locations and a lot of times a year.
0: Yeah. Maybe, maybe that's a term we need, we need to work on defining what, what is lightweight hunting? Yeah. Right. Like, well, like, cause if you go ultralight, right. If you start your Reddit thread and you say, Hey, I'm an ultralighter, they're going to say, well, it's 15 pounds or it's 12 pounds, or it's 12 pounds, six ounces is like all you get. Right. It's like, it's like somewhat clearly defined, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of extra variables in the, in the hunting stuff, um, that you have to bring. You know, if you're gonna do if you're gonna do meat care properly in the backcountry, you have to bring these things. You can't just not bring them, right?
2: Yeah, and if you're gonna be comfortable sitting sitting on a windy ridge top, you know, in 35 degree temperatures, like glassing for hours, I mean, you can't like you can't not bring insulated pants. <laughs> like, exactly. it's not gonna happen. So,
1: get into the 30s. I think you can get into. 33 35 I think I've been in that range quite a few times but I think guy I, I start walking when I get up closer to You know 40 but generally like I will consider my summer kit is probably like 13 14 pounds plus food and water um, But I'll consider my hunting kit usually like around 20 um, maybe a little bit more than 10 pounds for rifle or just hunting gear, you know, seven for rifle, a pound in game bags, and that you know, game processing range finder, um, a pound or two for binoculars. And you end up about right in that vicinity. Yeah, um, But it's it's different. You can't control things the way, if you're really trying to hunt, instead of being on a backpacking trip with a rifle. Yeah. Um, you can't control things the same way that you can in backpacking. You know, backpacking, you'd be like, "Well, the, the weather, a storm's blowing in. I think I want to bail to 2,000 feet lower, a little more sheltered." Um, but you might be in a great spot for um, weather, um, but it's going to be a real shit show.
2: Yep. Yeah, I mean the conditions are. The conditions are i mean you, you know this because you guys are live here but like you know october november for rifle season in colorado like i mean the conditions are rough it's um you know the, the nights are long and it's i feel like every year i've gone out um boy since the last year i went out and didn't get hit by a storm was 2016. so it's been three years in a row where we were out in second or third season and got whacked with something and mm-hmm. it's you know cold and wet and um. Yeah, just a lot of moisture and yeah.
1: It can be ten degrees, six degrees, whatever. So, yep. do you go sleeping bag or quilt for hunting season?
2: Oh, definitely a mummy bag. Yeah, mummy I, bag? I think. Yeah, I think the cutoff for uh, so this is like personal. It's, it was funny to hear you say that. Like you, the, you can get by without insulated pants like in the thirties, like and I, I will, I'll. You'll find me in the spring, like <laughs> if, I, if I'm out there with out in slave pants in the 30s. Uh, it's just a body type thing. Um uh So for me, like the cutoff for mummy bag and quilts is right around freezing. I think if I'm gonna if I'm gonna be seeing like night, regular nighttime lows below freezing, I just I don't think the I don't think the weight advantage of a quilt is worth the draftiness of it.
1: I agree. Uh, that's about my cutoff as well. I've, I've slept in testing to negative 25. In like a dual quilt setup mm-hmm. on a on a big down mat or whatever, but it's not something I would trust going with. When it if I expect it to get much below thirty, the, then I'm starting to it out. Yep,
2: yeah, I think because it, between it's you know it's just drafty, and then the other thing is like you just need so much head insulation to keep yourself warm in if like if temperatures in the twenties, that like you know even like a belay parka probably doesn't have as much insulation for a hood as like a mummy bag hood does mm. so
1: i would agree now one thing that actually i think works pretty well and i've taken a few times on winter trips is those faux fro- fur ruffs you know that like would be on a big oh. uh, yeah, but but those work really well
2: yeah yeah that's a totally um underrated um unknown like uh Sort of feature on jackets. Um, my from um, my Alaska trip, I, I bought a coyote fur and had my mom sew it onto the hood of one of my jackets, and uh, it was it was amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it keeps the breeze. It seems to keep air closer to your face, mm-hmm. so your face doesn't get this cold. Yeah. So yeah, those work really well. Yep. So yeah. So sleeping that's... pad for hunting season. Are you a closed cell foam, a <sighs> air pad? <laughs>
2: I usually uh, go with an air pad. I usually just go with my, my X light. Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: I bring an X light.
2: I bring an X light. And then I bring, um I bring a sit pad for the day. So I bring a foam pad for like, but just like a, you know, a butt sized foam pad.
0: And when you say X light, you mean like the Thermarest X light? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. yeah.
2: And that, I think that's, I think that's sort of the gold standard for sleeping bags or sleeping pads. Hmm.
1: I've never had good luck with the few air pads every time I've tried to move towards an air pad and just rely on it. I've ended up spending a few days in Canyonland sleeping on slick rock. <laughs> uh, but then I had an air pad. I finally, a couple, after that, that happened maybe 10 years ago. After that, I decided I finally was going to trust this air pad and I won't mention, and the manufacturer was good about it, but it blew a baffle and I practically needed to go get a chiropractor my, <laughs> my neck hurt so bad from it being just up. um and then when was the last time I, I forget the last time but i had another failure after that and i was like you know i guess i am just married to i have to have some sort of backup or it has to be a closed saw or it has to be a self-inflating so it has some foam in it Yeah. um but i've just kind of assumed that that's my lot in life i'm not able to go fully over to just the light yeah the
2: uh the the ultralight air mattresses are they're they're pretty delicate i mean you're looking at like you know 15d 20d fabric you know Mm -hmm. coated fabric i mean and then like that fancy welding that they have going on it's doesn't take much
1: yeah yeah so what other parts of for the hunt for hunting specific what other parts of your gear change you obviously are probably taking the more capable backpack no frameless pack
2: oh definitely not yeah and i usually don't carry a frameless pack anymore anyway i just think that they're um i just find them too limiting i mean if you're gonna it's often the case especially when i'm guiding where you're looking at um uh, you know most of the places where we guide we have uh we have to carry canisters um and then food up to seven days it's just sort of impractical to carry a, uh, a frameless pack. But I, so I'll, but I'll even up my like my frameless pack choice. So um, like your packs are great for hunting season because you can still kind of get that two and a half to three pounds range, but you can actually carry quite a bit of weight in it and it has, and it has the volume. Um, uh, I change out a lot of my clothing, so just uh, my clothing system assumes that I'm going to spend a lot more time just sitting around and I can't rely on my body heat to stay warm all the time. Um, Everything is. uh, um, See what else Um, I carry a full sided shelter so that way I can withstand uh, snow and um, find a good place to um, to hang out at night. Uh, I swap out my alcohol stove for canister stove that way I can fire up food quickly. So yeah, there are a lot of things that actually I'll I'll change for hunting season. The one thing that I, the one piece of gear that I've never, never been satisfied with, and actually we should, we should, we should talk more, more detail about it at some point maybe is a, uh, a hunting vest. And I just like, I've gone through a couple of them and I've never been satisfied with like, like, I mean, it could be like a really useful, could be a really useful like outer layer. It could have like, good pockets, it could have like a built-in um binocular sort of case. Um uh it's it shouldn't interfere with uh the hip belt for a backpack so it could have like some uh like some cuts at the side. And I just haven't seen one that's <clears throat> very well designed. They're all seem like they just all seem like afterthoughts.
0: And when you say vest you mean like a like an orange vest. Yeah an orange vest. It, See, yeah, vest. Yeah. yeah like a, like yeah. okay and yeah,
2: something definitely. that i can wear like in all conditions too so something that like that does well that's going to do fine like if it's uh you get like an abnormally warm october day and it's say 60 degrees um mm-hmm. and it's not too hot and then on the same hand you can still wear it if it's raining out or like snowing and it's not going to like absorb a much of water
1: i agree uh, um i we've actually talked a couple times about making vests um that were more specific for um, ultralight backpack hunting, I guess you'd say. Um, We've never never really went down. We talk about a lot of things that we don't do. Um,
2: (laughs) I bet. I bet, yeah.
1: (laughs) As as, as a manufacturer, I mean, we only have so much capacity. Right. You know, and and, and there's training and there's things like that, and we're made in the U.S., so it's not like we're just sending a sketch to someone over in Asia. Mm -hmm. And us back something and we're like ah eh, close enough you know um you know there it like right now we have a fairly big list of ideas but um we've been really really busy um and so i know that nothing's going to get done other than the few prototypes you know there's no way i'm putting another product into production at this yeah. moment where we're focusing on hiring sellers <laughs> you know and right. that's it so i'm
2: Well, from one small business owner to another, my my recommendation would be to stick to your known successes and not get too distracted.
1: I agree, and I think that's wise wise stuff there. Um,
2: Okay, so you made
1: a key point there that you, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase it. um, But what you said was the utility of a frameless pack, or something you feel is kind of maybe obsoleted a little bit
2: um frameless packs aren't obsolete they're just very niche and they don't have the if you, if someone's going to buy a backpack it's very rare where i'll tell them that they should get a frameless pack like they just they just don't have that that upper range that most people need so right. for example let's suppose you know just make a like the average backpacker um you know, their long trips for the summer might be like five days. Say, they probably at some point will go to a national park where a lot of bear canister. There are a lot of a lot of bear canister regulations. Um, They'll probably don't have a super streamlined kit, and um, they probably also aren't interested in punishing themselves with you know thirty or forty mile days back to back to back. So when you start adding all that up. Um, I just think that most people would be much happier with a backpack that weighs between two to three pounds, has a frame, can carry a bear canister, um, is durable, um, has has some feet, like some small some like basic features like external side pockets, hip belt pockets, shoulder pockets are great, and um, you know most people would be really happy there. The only people that I really that I think like can get away with frameless packs basically or through hikers or like really hard charging weekend warriors.
1: That's funny because you mentioned kind of as a business small business owner, small business owner, kind of saying we get often get requests for to build frameless backpacking packs. Yeah. I've been reluctant to it because I'm like, if there's one thing that we probably do really well in backpacks is our suspension. I think Agreed. um up with weight class. And so, right. why would we go with a suspensionless? Uh, and I think customers ask us because they think, well, you guys use some good fabrics. Uh, but then I I internalize and I'm like, well, but that's getting rid of probably our best, the feature that we do best, which is our suspension.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think your reaction is is correct. Um, I mean, where I see you you guys as a company, at least your pack line, is that you guys make lightweight packs that carry a lot of a lot of weight. And that will withstand sort of the abuse of some of those uh, like more rugged activities. So, um, and the Made in USA thing is, is sort of sweet addition too. So if you guys got rid of your, if you got rid of your frameless, if you got rid of your frame, I mean, you guys probably could differentiate yourself a little bit, but it's a pretty crowded market. Like I think that you guys have a little bit of a niche with, with, the weight of your packs combined with how much they can carry. Um, whereas if you guys just make a frameless pack that has sort of this, the right feature set, I mean, you're competing with a lot of other brands.
1: Yeah. Very, very. So So um, you, you talk about doing 20, 30, 40 mile days um, and relatively frequently. Um, do you pay a lot of attention or do things to keep yourself limber or is it just the result of your training um, and your running background that you're not getting say IT band or knee issues or some other issues propping up?
2: Yeah. Um, so I'm pretty, I've been like really fortunate and, um, for a while now and no major injuries. Um, and I, and I don't know what, I don't know exactly what the causes of that, but I, I maintain a pretty high level of fitness like all year round. So like right now, Dennis and I were talking earlier, but, I've been running, I've been, I, I was training for marathon all winter and spring. Um, right now, I'm transitioning back to the trails, but I'm running 60, 70 miles a week. Um, like this weekend, I ran 19 on Saturday with 4,000 vertical feet of gain, turned around Sunday morning, went back out for 11 with another 3,000 vertical feet of gain. So um, I, I think that carries over pretty well when I do want to go backpacking. Um, I'm probably not like as strong as... I would be optimal, like, I don't, I don't carry a pack as well as I used to. Um, but so, you know, the, the endurance and the fitness is still there. Um, I definitely think that as far as like injury resistance, I definitely think that like that being more of a multi-sport athlete. Um, so like, so backpacking for say 50 days a year and then running the other 300, that those two things go hand in hand. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can run more miles and more vertical because of the backpacking. And I think that I can like more easily jump into a backpacking trip and knock out huge huge mileage and vertical because of the running.
0: Yeah. It's almost like you're taking a break from running by going backpacking. Yeah. yeah. But but the backpacking just kind of complements, gives you the rest period, builds that muscle because you're carrying exactly. weight. Yeah. And then you transition back into the running. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense.
2: Yep. Yeah. And it's definitely like not a perfect carryover. Like when I start, when I come off of a backpacking trip and start running again, I mean, I feel like I don't know, like an elephant. <laughs> like my, like my legs are like, my legs are like, what, what, what is this? Why are we? Why are you telling us to move so fast?
1: Yeah. Where all this muscle come from?
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> um, that's a that's a quick question too. I I had when we were talking about you know bringing it back kind of to the Alaska Yukon expedition six months you're doing this thing like what's your what you're talking you know like every day was hard you're by yourself you're doing this thing it's like a mental mental game every day like what is your transition to you know quote real life after that like how, how long does it take you to decompress from a big big trip like that
2: that one was easy i was just so ready to be done i mean I like i don't want to i don't I'm not offending anyone making this comparison, but like, you know, when someone from the armed services comes back, like, they're excited to be home, <laughs> and like, and like out of danger, and like some creature comforts and um, companionship, and I was so I was ready for all of those things when I get done with Alaska. I, I embraced. Was that, I embraced pretty- the
1: reason, was that feeling the reason that was your last really big, big, big trip?
2: Um. Maybe maybe a little bit like I think I think actually what happened is that I got um, I felt pretty satisfied for. Like a a couple of years, like I've been like, okay, well, I've like I've checked off that adventure box for I think I can like take a break for a little while. You filled it in. You didn't didn't check
0: it. You like filled it in and then filled the other three boxes in.
2: And in the process of taking that break, um, I just acquired um, like other interests or like other responsibilities so like i met my i met my wife i bought a house i started a guiding business so there be- end up being some some other things that sort of have prevented me from have that, that have made it more difficult to like go out again for six months yeah
0: could, we, could you say you matured like i got, got a house got, like did all. Of yeah you... I, I grew up yeah yeah
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah so,
1: so let's go back to that trip real quick because there's a couple things you've mentioned earlier you mentioned bear cans continuously i know you've also been an advocate of sleeping with your food yep um did you sleep with your food on that trip
2: all the time every night
1: okay and why are you an advocate for sleeping with your food
2: well i just i think that i think sleeping with your food is an entirely reasonable thing to do if you um, if there are no bears in the area and if the area that you're in doesn't have an established food storage protocol um, and if um, uh, And if you're comfortable doing it. That's super convenient. It's easy. It takes no time. Um, you can use it. It's like mix for a really nice uh, knee rest or or pillow. I was just so, gonna
0: ask. I was gonna say, do you put it under your head? Yeah, I think
2: when you when you like when you like sleep with your food, like I think you have to be like in physical contact with it or it needs to be inside your shelter. I don't think that like I don't think it I, I think from like the perspective of a wild animal, if you have if your food bag is fifteen feet away from you on the ground, that basically is fair game. It's like sure like they don't really associate that food bag with being yours. Um so in the case of Alaska, um well first, like there really are no you can't hang your food consistently. Um, there, there are no other hikers out there, so bears don't really associate humans with food. Um, the bears in most in almost the entire state are hunted, so they really don't want anything to do with humans. Um, so all those factors kind of just led me to believe that um, that was probably the best the best option.
1: No, do you do anything to reduce the smell, or or have you tried it for sacks at all? Yeah, I carried.
2: Um, so I, if I'm gonna sleep with my food, I'll usually keep it in a um one of those odor-proof sacks, and I think that at least cuts down on the it's it, it it's a uh, it at least cuts down on the food sort of signature like the waftiness of your food. Um, it definitely is not like odor-free. I mean, just mm-hmm. few, like I mean, it smells like you. It smells like the food that's inside. But at least it's just not like wafting freely through the air um but you know I never even like um there are other things you could do to like cut down on your risk and um i just at some point like i ne- i just decided not to do them or i just didn't think it was I, like i mean i never i would have just cook my dinner in camp, and it was never an issue like it's i i probably would have changed my behavior if suddenly I had like bears coming into my camp, but it never happened so um, in fact, I remember one night or one morning I woke up. I woke up, I walked about um, I walked about 400 yards and I noticed like this brown lump um, just behind like this little dip in the in the tundra. And I'm like, boy, that that looks like it's hair, but it's not moving. Um, so I, I yell, I'm like, I'm like, hey, bear. And this bear, like, gets like wakes up out of this sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, all right, well, this bear was, you know, 400 yards away from my campsite. Um, like, you know, if he was go- if there was going to be a bear coming into my camp for dinner, it would have come in last night. And it, and it didn't. So um, I mean, yeah, but context matters. So like, I think that they're like, I don't want everyone to listen to this podcast and just think, okay, well, Andrew Skirkus says that I can sleep with my food. <laughs> because, you know, if you are, if you're in Yosemite National Park, sleeping with your food would be a really bad idea and Mm -hmm. because first the park required asks that you take a bear canister so you should just do it because they're asking you to and the second thing is that the bears there are like they have no fear they will come to your campsite and like they'll steal a bag of gorp that's right next to you on the bench Mm no you know no problem um if you hang your food they have they know every trick in the book for getting it down so um so go
0: open open your car doors and Oh so yeah, go through your car
2: exactly. <laughs> sure. So so location matters.
1: Yeah, definitely don't catch some fish in an alpine lake and store them in the tent.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Don't do that in yellow in Yellowstone. Yeah, bad idea.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly.
2: Yeah. It's funny. That was um. So I did I did like a I did a series on like a tutorial on like how to properly store your food overnight. And, um, I laid out like five recommended techniques and I intentionally did not include hanging my food as one of them. And I just sort of threw it out there that, um, like it was just like this offhanded statement of like, I think it's a really outdated technique. And then I just went on with the rest of the post. And there's so much feedback about, about like, like, what do you mean by that? Like, you know, what, like, you know, I think you're wrong that I put up this larger post on why I think hanging your food is a bad idea Mm -hmm. and um that that post last year like almost broke the internet (laughs) like i couldn't i couldn't believe how much um sort of how many how many people wanted to make comments about like about that
1: you were Um, making people's head explode on
2: Reddit. it it really was and i just think it was such an ingrained it's such a piece of conventional wisdom that you should hang your food when you're backpacking so to take that And flip it on its head and actually say, no, like, like this is actually a bad idea. And here's why. And to offer like a couple of like really valid reasons why you shouldn't Mm -hmm. hang your food. Yeah, I (laughs) just, I mean, some people really struggled with uh, having to re-educate themselves after doing it, after like backpacking that way for like 40 or 50 years.
0: I I remember, I think one of the pictures on that post is you standing on a trail. I think you're Mm -hmm. on the trail with a trekking pole and you're just like, like you can just touch it. Yeah, it's you that, you the see that all
2: the time. Yeah. yeah. Or like there's you know, there's another photo I my wife and I did the Aspen four pass loop a couple of years ago and and you know, there are bears in that area and um they ask you to they ask you to hang your food and like I mean the bear hangs that I saw were just they're so pathetic. Like, you know, people would like literally just climb up the tree and like reach out on a limb and like tie it. And I'm like I'm like, okay, so like if you climb out on the tree, like did it ever occur to you that a black bear could also climb up the tree and get your food bag? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the sort of like you know that's like the standard for for food hangs. And there are people who do it really well, but um, most people don't. Most probably like 95% of people, maybe even more, like walk away from their their food that's hung up in the tree, and and their and their thought is not um, no bear is ever going to get that. But the thought instead is. That'll have to do. And, <laughs> and that's a really, yeah. that's a poor standard for protecting your food if you're serious about protecting the wildlife in an area.
1: Now, do you teach people in your classes how to do it?
2: No, we don't even teach it. Yeah, well, um, we just think it's, we just think it's that poor of a method that we don't even teach it. So like we... Yeah, we will carry bear canisters. We'll use earth sacks. Um, we'll do rodent hangs, um, and in some areas, we'll sleep with our food. Yeah. Uh,
1: how well do earth sacks
2: work? Um, haven't seen one tested in the field. Um, I mean, the way that I think, I think realistically, like if you talk to earth they'll tell you that they work just as well as a bear canister, and I don't think they're right on that. I think that um, I don't think that there is. I don't. Th- I think that they buy you time so um uh if i was i think they buy you time to get up and chase the damn bear away um i don't think i would um if i heard a bear playing around with my bear canister like my like my bear vault um i probably will go roll back over and go back to sleep laughing like realizing this bear is gonna like drive himself crazy for the rest of the night trying to figure out how to open that damn thing Mm-hmm. Um, if I heard a bear messing around with my ursac I would not feel comfortable doing this, taking that same approach. I would get up and chase it away because I think if it had six hours to work on it, it would, it would at least make a mess of the bag, if not find a way in.
1: Or or pot- potentially ruin the crush, ruin whatever it, food. Exactly. Might... Yeah.
2: I mean, there's going to be bear slobber over everything, and 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 like you're going to have pulverized food for the next you know, until you until you exit. Yeah.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> no, it may not be edible. Now, one thing. A few years ago, I think it, I think it was you. Um, I read something where I think you were advocating, like why do the whole CDT when you can do some really good sections of it, um, like the Lemonuich, right, uh, winds, the glacier, yeah, um, section stuff like that. Was was that you? That um, you was I, I, I've
2: said similar things to that. I'm not sure you. My guess it probably was. Um, I, I, I can't like, I can't draw like a specific place. I'm like, oh yeah, I've said that exact thing. But I think my, I think what you're saying, like the argument that I've made for like the past couple of years is that, um, you know, there's so much like a, uh, the the long the the backpacking community very much like uh, it puts up on hero status like the long distance trail, mm-hmm. and um, and thru hikers, and um, I just like with where I am in my life right now, I I don't have, um, you know, even two months to go do like a, even a shorter long distance trail. Um, And even if I did have have two months, like like having had the experiences that I've had, I know that a two month through hike means that you're going to spend about, I mean, it depends on what trail, but you're going to spend like a third of that going through like really marginal, just shitty areas that are like, this is boring as hell. You're going to spend another third going through areas that are pleasant and nice and like you're enjoying yourself. And then you're going to spend a third of areas that are like drop dead gorgeous, like, wow, I just, I'm I'm beside myself at how, how amazing this place is. And my my position nowadays is like, well, you know, I've got, you know, I'm lucky like in a normal summer, if I get out for like, say two, three, two, three weeks on personal trips, um, I want to spend every single day in, an, in a kick-ass place. So I'm just going to cherry pick the areas I want to go to, and I'm going to ignore the rest.
1: Driving through Wyoming, say on the east side of the Wind Rivers, yep. You look at winds, and you're like, "Wow, that's a cool mountain range." Yep. Right, and then you come across the Red Desert uh-huh. um, area, and you're like, "Myself, I've been like, why the heck would I want to ever hike through the Red Desert?" <laughs> yeah
2: right <laughs> yeah and that's that's basically the you know the thing um so you're you're absolutely right i mean if you just if you had a week why would you know of course you're just going to spend all your time in the winds so but this was um sort of this this larger thing was me like my so my like my projects or like my focus the last couple of years have been on high routes and mm-hmm. so like the wind river high route Fisher the Fisher traverse the assembly high route king's canyon and high basin route um and um, I, been it's been a great project for me because it gives me um, it, it gives me a goal it gives me something to, um, to like go do. I feel really like it's a really novel like I, I can apply like all of my planning skills to a new route. I get a great backcountry experience and then I've got something to do in the wintertime if I decide to try to um, leverage it into some content. Um, but for you know I just see like a high route as being, Wet. like it's they're all awesome all the time as opposed to a through hike which is like awesome some of the time
1: <laughs> that, that's kind of funny because like I've, I've done part of the kind of all divide cdt lagarita um Lemonych kind of stuff yeah and i remember seeing like cdt people coming through and they would just be like i cannot wait until i get to trees again you know because <laughs> it, it, it seemed like that uh, that section that you're up above tree line for so long that it's almost just kind of dauntingly exposed.
2: Um it, it is. It's a um it's an uncomfortable feeling for how long you're above tree line. Yeah. 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 The um the Wind River High Route is like that too. You um it only drops below 10,000 feet once after it gets started and you're below You're below 10,000 feet for like a half mile, and then you're back up. So it's just it just gets it just gets airy. I mean, you just um, you're just blasted by the sun. You know that if like a thunderstorm comes in, you're gonna get walloped. Um, like all the campsites are kind of cold, exposed. Yeah.
1: Windy. Yep. So. Well, cool. Do hmm. um, you have any questions Other questions, Dennis?
0: Um, no, I'm good. Uh, Andrew, where can uh, where can people find your stuff, right? If they want to, if they want to comment about how to hang bear hang, <laughs> yeah, where can they where yeah. can they find it?
2: Well, for that one, if you just type in um bear hang, <laughs> Google Google uh, will send you to the right place. Um, <laughs> uh, and then if they want to find me, they can um so just search for my last uh, and first name is Andrew, last name is Skurka, S K U R K A. My my website will come up pretty quick.
0: Cool. And you publish, publish super often, right? Like fairly often on on your blog there. I try,
2: I try. It's been a little bit of a challenge this year, but um, when I do post stuff, it's usually, it's usually good, good content.
0: Absolutely. Cool, man. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I learned some stuff and I probably got, got more questions for you too next time
2: all right well next time yeah it's been fun to fun hang out for an hour and a half i like the video effect it feels like we've just been having a conversation so thanks thanks for having keep up the good work that you guys are doing too
1: cool you should stop by sometime
2: if i next time out in grand junction would love to yeah come on by see the place yeah
0: bring your bring your best ideas
2: i we should i'll just you know i'll after next hunting season, when I'm reminded of how much my hunting vest sucks, I'm gonna send you an email and be like, Kevin, here's what, here's the prototype that I want. <laughs>
0: here's the one I here's the one. I, yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> Kevin, here's how you need to here's how you need to allocate your limited resources on this hunting uh-huh. vest that 10 other people want. So mm-hmm. all right, cool. Well have a good day, guys. Thanks very cool. much. Yeah,
0: Bye. thanks. Man. Awesome. Hey everyone. Real quick before you go, I just wanted to say thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying what you're hearing, please leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you.